0: Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. My name is Linda. Our scripture reading for today is Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of God has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. Good morning. We worship an amazing God who is who was who is and who is to come and um <clears throat> Uh, Thank you, Tori uh, and Scott, for leading us in in singing uh, this morning. It's it's an honor to just be gathered in the Lord's house, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's life, there's freedom, and there's joy in the house of the Lord um, today. (coughs) I'm going to start and end with a word of encouragement, um, because I don't know if you just listened to today's text, John the Baptist has some very harsh words to say to uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, so... It is a um, intense, to say the least, and to say the least, an intense text. So I'm going to start with a word of encouragement that kind of goes along with the songs we were just singing about who God is, that He is worthy of it all. And uh, Paul says in Romans eight that there is, for those who are in Christ, no condemnation anymore. There's no condemnation. Sins that you have had committed against you, that you yourself have committed against others, washed by the blood. Guilt, shame, gone. When you are in Christ Jesus. He ends, I I like to call Romans 8 the victory lap of the book of Romans because basically Paul's just like, everything's amazing because Jesus is awesome. And uh, he ends it by saying, I'm convinced that neither death nor life Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things in the present, nor things in the future, nor things, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's in that that we celebrate and we have hope. And that is the gospel. That is why we're literally called Ankeny Gospel Church, because we have the news. We've been given the news by the Spirit of God, along with all the other churches who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. We are given the good news of eternal life. So with that, I want to continue this posture of worship with a word of prayer. Um, if you're new or visiting, we're in, gosp- we in this series of the gospel according to Matthew, and um, we're going to continue on in chapter 3 today. But before we do that, I would like to pray and uh, continue this posture of worship. Father... We know that you are here in the silence and the stillness. Holy Spirit, we know that you are prodding our minds and our hearts, and you are drawing us towards yourself. Lord, we have acknowledged that you are worthy of it all, and now we ask that you would give us our daily bread. You would bring your kingdom to earth, you would forgive us our sins. Because you alone, O you alone, oh Lord, have all the authority. You have the power, the might, the strength. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would unstop our ears. You would prod and you would soften our fickle hearts. And that as we read and listen to your word, God, that you would not just let it sit but you would let it transform. Holy Spirit, you are doing a work right now in your church, in your body, all across uh, this city, all across Iowa, all across the nation, and all across the world, and we are just so honored and blessed to be a part of what you're doing. Father, may your kingdom come, your will be done, here on earth and in Ankeny as it is in heaven. It's in, it's in your Son's name that we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Amen, Uh, Matthew chapter three, verse one. Follow along with me, it's gonna be one of those days. In those days, let's stop right there. In those days, first three words. You guys are like, oh boy, it's one of these weeks where (laughs) I get three words in and I'm already stopping. In those days, let's pause. What days is is Matthew talking about here? If you remember, let's do a quick review. Matthew one and two, Matthew one was talking about who Jesus is, right? He's the son of David, i.e. the rightful heir to the throne whose kingdom will never end. He's the son of Abraham, i.e. the one in and through whom all of the nations and families of the earth will be blessed. That was the genealogy. Then we are given a name. uh, An angel came to Joseph and he said, you shall name him Jesus, because why? He will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. We also found out that Jesus is Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. And that helped us go into chapter 2, and we met King Herod and these wise men. They came to King Herod, and he got really insecure, and he was like, whoa, 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 king? No, that that can't be right. And so the wise men have the response of Jesus of falling on their knees, worshiping, celebrating, giving Jesus, this child, their gifts, gold, their treasures, their, like, most valuable possessions. They just handed it over. Meanwhile, you have the chief priests and scribes who know where the Messiah was going to be born, but they don't even go and worship him. And you have King Herod who gets insecure and starts and, and figures out that he, he couldn't go and kill Jesus. And so when the wise men leave, Joseph and Mary have to depart and leave in the middle of the night. And, Joseph, and Herod goes and he kills all the baby boys two years old and, and younger in Bethlehem. Last week we ended with basically this question, where is God when everything goes wrong? Everything went wrong at the end of chapter 2 in Matthew. Mary and Joseph had to flee for their lives. Uh, their friends that they were just living with and around in Bethlehem, probably their son was killed and they would have known their son. And then they go back. They think they catch a break and they go back to uh, Jerusalem or it, it, the land of Judah. But then once they get there, they realize that their Herod's son, Archelaus, is even worse. So then they have to go into this nowhere village called Nazareth so that he will be called a Nazarene. That's literally the end of chapter two. Chapter three says, in those days, in those days. Now, what Matthew just did is he just fast-forwarded about 30 years' narrative time. So we have, in the Gospel of Luke, we have some stories about Jesus' childhood, like when he like, got lost in the temple and his parents left him, which I don't know if you've ever left your kids in like, a grocery store or something, but it'd probably be very scary. Um, so it, we have some passages like that in Luke, but in Matthew, it's just like, so that he'll be called a Nazarene, and he's a toddler in Nazareth, and then, boom, jumps over 30 years. Now, this phrase, in those days, It's a really actually significant and important phrase. There are two layers, kind of like an onion. You know, there's multiple layers. There's two layers to this phrase in those days. The first is just, it's just that. In the days of Jesus and John the Baptist. We fast forwarded 30 years narrative time. Now it's in those days that um, these things are happening. Peel back that layer. There's a second layer of the meaning in those days. And this is actually really, really significant and, and, and important. The phrase in those days is used by the prophets in the Old Testament, hundreds of times, literally hundreds and hundreds of times, it's something. Uh, and, and most times in the prophets, the phrase "in those days" refers to the future. So I don't know if you know, like in those days there will be great this and great that, and in those days it will be this and that. And basically, what the the message that is being presented by the prophets, whenever they say "in those days," is a twofold message of God's future salvation and God's future judgment. It's a twofold message that the prophets use in those days, and they prophesy or talk about God's future salvation and God's future judgment. Sometimes it's like literal, like if they're in exile to Babylon, it's God's future salvation. You are literally going to be freed from Babylon and enter into there, and then it's God's judgment. Babylon will fall, literally. Sometimes it's more um, theological than that. Like it's not just a freedom from exile, like a literal exile, it's a freedom from a spiritual exile. And it's always phrased, and in those days, here's a future salvation of the Lord and a future judgment of the Lord. Here's a few examples I'm gonna put on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Joel chapter two, uh, verse 28, 29, and three, one. Uh After this, this is Joel speaking about after the Lord will redeem his people, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Yes, I will even pour out my spirit on the male and the female slaves when in those days, dot, 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 Yes, in those days, at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and I will judge them because of my people, Israel. What's this talking about? In those days, this future day of the Lord where God will pour out his spirit, salvation and judgment. Next slide. Uh, Zechariah 8.23, this one's kind of fun. Then uh, Yahweh of armies says in those days ten men from nations of every language will grab the robe of a Jewish man tightly urging let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. What title is Jesus given in chapter one Emmanuel God with us. What is this saying in those days. This is what's going to happen. Next slide. Uh, One of my favorites, Jeremiah 3, 16 through 18. I will give you shepherds who are loyal to me. This is um, the word of the Lord speaking through Jeremiah to the people of Israel. They will shepherd you. You will multiply and increase in the land in those days. In those days, Jerusalem will be called Yahweh's throne. All of the nations will be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord. They will cease to follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts in those days days. This is just a sampling like three of the, you know, most popular ones of that phrase in those days. Hundreds of times it's used talking about God's future salvation and God's future judgment. Matthew in chapter 3 verse 1 says in those days. Who's the next character on the scene? John the Baptist. What is John the Baptist proclaiming? God's future salvation and future judgment is not all that future anymore. It's here. It's right now. In the first three words of chapter three, Matthew is saying that the prophets, saying that God will redeem his people, all of the nations of the earth will admit and, and, and know that Jesus is Lord. By the way, where we're the wise men from, they're from the east, they represent the nations. They come to the Lord's throne, and, they say, and, and, and Matthew is saying that God's salvation and God's judgment is at hand. And that's exactly what John the Baptist says. Let's keep going. Uh, chapter three, verse one. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, verse 2, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. All right, here it is. This is the very first time the phrase kingdom of heaven is used. If you've been with us for the prior weeks, our subtitle for Matthew is kingdom of heaven because that phrase occurs over 50 times. Kingdom and kingdom of heaven occurs over 50 times in the gospel of Matthew, which means it's super important so we should pay attention to what it means this is the first time it's used it's on the lips of john the baptist now here's a sermon that john the baptist gave right it says preaching in the wilderness a sermon that john the baptist gave repent the kingdom of heaven has come near the great sermon short sweet to the point you guys are probably like yeah can you preach for that long (laughs) next time too we will also see in a few weeks jesus's first sermon guess what it is repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near Why? Why is that John the Baptist's first message? Why is that Jesus's first message? Let's dissect this together. First word is repent. The most basic meaning of repent is just to turn around. Just stop. You're going one way. Turn around, go the other way. That's the most basic meaning of the word repent. But it's more than just like a repenting of thinking. Like, oh, I thought this one way, but now I'm going to actually think another way. It's actually repentance and a change in thought, word, and deed. It is a whole self transformation. Thought and word and deed. If you only change or repent in your thinking, you're going to be puffed up with knowledge and become a Pharisee. To which John the Baptist and Jesus had some harsh words for them. If you only change and repent in your word, you're going to become a hypocrite, saying one thing and doing and believing another. If you change only in your deed, you will either become a legalist who thinks that what you do ha- earns you righteousness with God, or you'll become a uh, like a person who thinks that the kingdom of god exclusively comes through like acts of of of, like justice and things like that it's not one or two it is all three we need to a repentance is a change of the mind a change of the heart a change of the word and a change of your deed and the thrust of this word repent is not a one-time action it's easy to think that oh i repented before I repented when I was like, you know, seven or eight years old. I asked Jesus into my heart and I repented, so I'm good to go. No. This word is a continual action. Hey, start repenting. There's a moment where you have started repenting. There's a moment in, you, in, Lord willing, in your life, if you are a Christ follower, where you have put off the old and you have put on the new. You have turned from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That is an initial act of repentance, but repentance never stops there. The believer is, is to be always repenting, always changing, always being transformed from the inside out by the spirit of the living God. Now, repentance in our culture, and by our culture, I mean like, uh, like conservative evangelicalism. Uh, unfortunately, repentance has become synonymous with confession of sins. Those two things are not the same. Confession of sins is like a, uh, an act of speaking something. Repentance is a whole life change. For example, when I was a kid and I was rude to my sister, my sister's not here today, so I can say that I was rude to her, and I was rude to my sister, uh, I would like, be really rude to my sister, and my mom and dad would be like, hey, you need to you know, repent. You need to apologize. And I'd be like, okay, hey, I'm sorry. And then I would do that. What was that? I confessed. I admitted that I was, well, I admitted with my mouth and my words that I was sinning and that I was wrong. But did I repent? No. I confessed my sins, but repentance is not the same as confession. Repentance is a whole life transformation from the inside out in thought, word, deed, motive, action, everything. Repentance requires everything. Now, John the Baptist and Jesus' first word in their sermon is repent. Why? Next phrase. Because, this is why you should repent. Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. What does this mean? Matthew's main theme is kingdom and every kingdom has to have a king. Jesus is king of both heaven and earth. But what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven, excuse me, has come near? If you've been here before, you might be getting tired of this, but that's okay because we're going to say it again. There's this chart that we have of, of these circles, which is going to be on the screen here in a second. There's this chart that we have of, of different circles. Can we get that up there? Perfect. We're going to walk through this again. This is what the kingdom of heaven is. In the fir- on the far left, far left, what do we have? We have, two, we have one circle that represents Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, what happened? Genesis 1 and 2, God has created a good world for his people. The presence of God and the presence of humanity are the same. In other words, the kingdom of G- heaven, God's space, and the kingdom of earth, man's space, there's no distinction there. God is walking with his people. It is as it should be. God says, rule the world, be fruitful, multiply, make cities, make art, make sport, like go for it. Let's do this together. Those kingdoms of heaven and earth together as one. Then, how did humans do? Genesis 3, what happened? Humans said, you know, I I understand that we have this kingdom together type of a thing, but actually, I want to make my own kingdom. I want to decide what good and evil is on my own. I want to rule my own world and so they were deceived and they sinned they took of the fruit and they ate and what happened in that moment they were banished from the presence of God that's a second group of circles there is a separation of God's presence, of God's reign, of God's rule, and the presence on earth. And we see that all throughout, you don't have to look very hard to see that this earth is not as it should be. There's destruction, there's uh, envy, there's murder, there's strife, there is murder, there is strife, there's just all of this sin and decay in the world. And the kingdom of heaven, God's presence, and the kingdom of earth, human's presence, they were separated in that moment. Now, what the Old Testament talked about was a day when those two kingdoms would come back together again, the last set of circles. That would be the day of the Lord when it would fully come and in that moment, God's salvation would come for his people and his judgment would come for those who are not his people. This is why Matthew is so beautiful. The gospel is so beautiful. Jesus is so beautiful. It's because of this this Venn diagram right in the middle. What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven has come near? It means that God's rule, God's reign, God's presence has actually started and infiltrated our rule and the kingdom of earth, in and through Jesus. So now, what does this mean? This is why Romans, Paul says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Because through Jesus, and through grace, and through the gospel, we now have an opportunity to partake in the kingdom of heaven while still living in the kingdom of earth. This is what theologians call already not yet or inaugurated eschatology, if you wanna take it another step further. Like, it's it's inaugurated. The kingdom of heaven is inaugurated. It's started, it's here. But it's also not yet fully here. So how, how do we enter into this kingdom of heaven? How do we enter into, th- into the gospel? How do we enter into God's presence? Repent. In order to, to, to go from living in the kingdom of earth and of, uh, where we are the kings of our own heart into the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of heaven, which is one of peace and love and justice and where the first are last and the last are first, that kingdom, In order to enter it, one, it's possible for you to enter it right now and to have that as an inheritance, but in order to get there, it requires repentance. Putting that fruit down, if you're in Genesis 3, putting that piece of fruit down, saying, you know what, I'm actually not going to try to define what's good and evil on my own. I'm actually going to submit to the king of both heaven and earth, who is Jesus. This is what it means that the kingdom of heaven has come near now, as we continue Matthew, we're going to see more and more what that looks like, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. You want to know what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven? Read the Sermon on the Mount. That's what a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, somebody who lives in the kingdom of heaven, that's what, th- that's what it looks like. Okay, well, I'm already running out of time. All right, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Verse 3, he keeps going. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is a, a quote from Isaiah, and what's interesting, I'm just gonna make one comment about this. Look at uh, the last phrase, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. And, uh, in the Old Testament, the Lord is synonymous with Yahweh, the God above all gods. So in Isaiah, this prophet is saying, hey, there's gonna be a person who's preparing the way for Yahweh, the Lord. And John the Baptist is preparing the way for who? Jesus. In other words, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Jesus is the one God and the one king and the one ruler above all gods. Now, verse 4, John had camel hair garments with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but in the Bible, there's not a lot of details about, like, people or things. You know, like, which is annoying for, if you're asking yourself, like, oh, did Adam have a belly button? Like, what's that? Like, we don't know. We don't know a lot of things, right? So, whenever there are details about, like, clothing or food or people's height or people's look, like, whenever there are details, it's very, very, very important and significant. So, what's going on here in verse 4? Why do I need to know that John had camel hair, garment, a leather belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey? There's another prophet in the Old Testament named elijah who wore guess what a camel hair garment a leather belt around his waist and at one point he ate locusts and wild honey why does matthew want us to associate john the baptist with the prophet elijah on the screen there's going to be a verse here from micah nope not micah malachi 4 verse 5. this is the last book in our protestant bibles of the old testament after this moment there's 400 years of silence And then the next prophet on the scene is John the Baptist. Look at how Malachi, the end of our Old Testament, look how it ends. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of Yahweh comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. What's this saying is that there is, John the Baptist is Elijah. John the Baptist is the one who has ended the 400 years of silence by being the prophet of God. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Next slide. Uh, Matthew 11, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, is greater than he. And if you're willing to accept it, I love that Jesus says that. He is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. Who is John the Baptist? He is the one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, the Elijah, who is going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Remember what it means in those days? God's salvation is at hand, and God's judgment is at hand. And what does John the Baptist proclaim? Let's keep going. Verse 5 and 6. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. They were proclaiming their sins and they were being baptized by, as a public act of what they believed inwardly. And then verse seven. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath This is the first time the Pharisees and the Sadducees are on the scene in Matthew and the first words that come out of John the Baptist's mouth is brood of vipers literally offspring of snakes This question who warned you to flee from the coming wrath it's more like a sarcastic question cuz they're not fleeing from the coming wrath They were coming there to observe, to be like, who is this guy? He's creating quite a stir because all these people from Jerusalem are going to him. And then he says in verse eight, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. There was this belief in Israel that if you were an israelite by birth you were a child of god and you were the one to inherit the world to come in other words your ethnicity made you um saved your ethnicity made you a child of god and john the baptist here says it doesn't matter if you're a jew by birth that doesn't make you a child of god that does not make you a son of abraham What does make you a child of God and a son of Abraham is not your ethnicity, but your faith. Look at verse 8. Produce what? Fruit consistent with repentance. John's first message is repent, the kingdom of God has come, and then in your life you're bearing fruit that's consistent with repentance. Now there's this phrase, I don't know if you've heard it God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. In other words, God has no like grandchild. God has only children, sons and daughters. In other words, your parents' faith cannot be you can't inherit your parents' faith. We inherit a lot from our parents. Maybe our our height, some character traits, some personality traits, our looks, all that stuff. One thing that we cannot inherit from our parents is our faith. If your defense For following Jesus is, well, my parents love Jesus, so therefore I love Jesus. You are not following Jesus. If, when the Lord returns in glory, and you look at him, and his power, and his radiance, and you're shook to the core, and you say, I am yours because my parents believe in you. He will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. You cannot inherit your parents' faith. God is a God who has children that He produces. John the Baptist says that he's able to raise up children for Abraham from stones. In other words, it doesn't matter that you're a descendant of Abraham. It doesn't matter that your, your parents were Christians, your grandparents were Christians. That doesn't matter. What matters is fruit consistent with repentance. Now, that's very particular to a parent-child relationship, but it goes beyond that because I think what's even more de- uh, deceiving is the culture that we live in. Because I don't, I don't think a lot of us, or maybe, maybe we would, but I, uh, it's not as tempting to say, well, my parents were Christians, therefore I'm a Christians, Christian. What is tempting to say is that the culture of Christianity or Christian morality, living in there, using that as our alibi, rather than actually having a heart that's transformed by the gospel. Meaning what? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a part of a church plant. So I that that's got to count for something. I give to the church. I know it's good to do. Check the box. I I give to the church. I read the Bible by myself. I actually read it with my family. We do devotionals together. I have my name in my Bible. That's it's got to mean something. I serve I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't vote that way, I don't drink this, I don't eat that, I don't swear. Like, I mean, I'm good. None of those things make you a child of God. None of them. And friends, the reason I'm saying this is because here in Ankeny, I'm gonna zero in at this moment, all of us here right now, It can be very tempting to think that because we do certain things we have a certain moral standard we have a certain way of how we approach our schedule how we approach our parenting how we approach our church going because we do that and because it's easy to do that in Ankeny this message needs to be louder none of that makes you a child of God. And the result of that is spelled out right here in verse 10. The ax is already at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that doesn't Produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. For those of you who do not produce fruit consistent with repentance, who have not repented because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this is your future. And I don't say that lightly. Because it's terrifying and these Pharisees and these Sadducees we would have been friends with them I would have been friends with them and John the Baptist said you have no idea what you're actually doing verse 11 I baptize you with water for repentance but the one the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I am I'm not even worthy to remove his sandals. Removing his sandals was something that was banned for even a Hebrew slave. If you were a Hebrew slave, you still weren't allowed to remove somebody's sandals. It was lower than that. John the Baptist says, my role with this Messiah is that he's so powerful that I can't even do what a Hebrew slave is, is forbidden to do. I'm below that. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 12, another example. His winnowing shovel is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. This image is one that's familiar with the Old Testament. uh, With the Old Testament, if you remember Psalm 1, talks about a righteous man, a blessed man, is like a tree that bears fruit in all seasons, no matter what comes, no matter what season comes. He has deep roots, so he's producing fruit. It says that the wicked are like chaff. What would happen here is that uh, farmers in this day, they would have a winnowing shovel and they would, after they would harvest, they would gather the wheat and along with it came weeds and chaff and all this stuff. So with this shovel, what they would do is they would um, grab it and they would throw it up in the air and then the wheat would fall The heavy stuff. The good stuff. And the chaff would be blown away in the wind. And the weeds would be blown away in the wind. And they would do that for hours. Just winnowing. And just clearing out the wheat from the chaff. Clearing out the wheat from the chaff. Clearing out the wheat from the chaff. And what they would do then is they would gather the wheat. After it was all done. They would put it in the barn to be used for making food. And things like that. And then with the chaff what they would do. Is they would bundle it up. And they would burn it. This is what the word of God says is going to be true of people. The wicked in Psalm 1 are like chaff. They're they're blown away by the wind. And right here, the wicked, in his language, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to be burned with a fire that never goes out. This is really terrifying stuff. But the reason it's so, but rather, it's terrifying for those who are not found in Christ. It's terrifying for those who have not repented, believed, because the kingdom of heaven is here. For those of us who have This should produce a gratefulness of the Lord and this should produce an urgency. An urgency to be the one like John the Baptist and say repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. This life that we know, it's not all that there is. The things that we accumulate and you accumulate in your lives and all this stuff, none of it will matter at the day of the Lord. What matters is that we produce fruit consistent with repentance. That we are filled with the spirit of the living God. We have a new heart God has taken our heart of stone. He's removed it and he's shattered it and he's given us a heart of flesh and we can cry out, Lord, you are God. And we can look to Jesus. What happened at the end of this gospel? Jesus died. He took the punishment of this and he died and now in his blood, by his wounds, we are what? We are wounded? No, we are healed. So John the Baptist is a very simple message: repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. But it's also profoundly terrifying for those of us who have, for those of you who have not repented. Again, in those days, future salvation and future judgment. It's the same message today. The Lord is going to return. Maybe not in our lives, maybe not in our grandkids' lives, maybe not in another couple hundred years. I don't know. Nobody knows except the Father. But the Lord is going to return, and I pray that I and that we here at Ankeny Gospel Church will be raised from the dead, and we can say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, and He says, I know you. You're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. You are mine because of Christ. Now, there's a few questions I want to ask us based on this text, and the first is very simple Have you repented? Have you repented? The first time. Have you repented the first time? And if, if, if that's you, are you conti- if you already have repented and believed because the kingdom of heaven is here and if you have given your life to Jesus, that is amazing. Praise God. Are you still repenting? Are you repenting from the bad and dead fruit that you're producing and wanting the Lord to work through you and the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit to be produced in your life? So the first question is, have you repented? The second question is this, are you producing fruit? If you have repented, are you producing fruit? Again, if you want to know what fruit of the Spirit is, look at um, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Also, Paul spells it out for you in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Love. It's joy. It's Just excitement about life. It's peace. Does that define you? gentleness thankfulness self-control all of the fruit of the spirit is right there for you I really encourage you if, you if you're wondering am I producing that go to Galatians 5 read it don't use it as a new law because it finishes by saying against such things there is no law but use it to sp- cry out to the Lord Lord produce this fruit in my life one have you repented two are you producing fruit and finally three do you proclaim the kingdom Everybody's called to preach, by the way. The word preach and proclaim is the same. Everybody's called to preach the gospel. Here's the gospel. Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's what it is in John the Baptist's words. Based on what we know about the future salvation and the future judgment of the Lord, which are both good things, they're two sides of the same coin, based on what you know, guaranteed, everybody in here knows somebody who has not repented. Are you proclaiming that good news of the kingdom? Not, a, not news of damnation, like, oh, you're the worst and this is what's going to happen to you. The good news, the invitation of the gospel. So I want to leave these three questions with you. Um, and I'm going to give us a little bit of time to just kind of reflect, but right after that I'm going to pray. And then um, we're going to lead us into communion.